Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sports Yak. One host knows sports. And who's right there? The other doesn't know sports, but somehow they meet in the middle. Corey Mann. Get your big butt out of here. And Indiana Sports Broadcast Hall of Famer. This one will be relived. Chuck Freebie. Forever. Do you like sports? Cause we like sports. Let's talk about sports. It's Sports Jack. Sports Jack. It's Sports Jack. Live from a bunker in the heart of the Ozarks, a podcast that gives you nothing for your money but a memory. It's Sifpa. Welcome to Civ Pop Weekly, streaming live most weekends are available to download later in your podcast feed, unless of course you're a patron, because patrons get those perks. I'm your host, Aaron Dicer, and each week we'll chat about movies, television, and whatever else from the pop culture universe is on our minds. And please welcome our guest this week. I'm not sure if she's a prim, starchy English schoolgirl, but I do know she's a swooning movie picture fan. It's Christy Puchko. Welcome, Christy. Hi. Good to have you here. Uh, Christy is a freelance film critic uh, from New York City. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And yes. uh, I, you may have seen her published in uh, on Vanity Fair, IGN, uh, Pajiba, and uh, more. And she's also a fellow member of the Critics' Choice Association, which is where we have met. That's um, right. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on, Christy. The first time we met was about a year ago. Um, I believe it was, was it Irishman? Was that the first time? It was the time? Irishman. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was the first time we met. Um, that was a fun week. Uh, of all the things quarantine, you know, has has uh, taken from, you know, kind of the day to day. That is, you know, those kind of movie awards things is is one I'm I'm excited maybe next year to have back. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we can get through this thing together. Um, yeah. And do yeah. that again. But uh, yeah, how, talk a little. Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and you'll have a chance to, you know, kind of send people, promote people to, you know, whatever you want uh, towards the end as well. But yeah, how did you become a movie critic? How did you fall in love with movies? What's your story? Uh, well, when I was like little, I was uh, fixated on movies really early. Like a lot of kids are. I just would stare at them and was super into them. But um, because of Jim Henson, I was aware that like it was a fantasy someone had built into a real thing oh. because he would do these like behind the scenes specials. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was one explicitly where he was like, people ask how we can make the Muppets pick up things. And I thought it was so cool that he would talk about the Muppets like they were people, but also then show you like behind the scenes. And they were like showing how like here's Gonzo walking across the screen and then picking up a telephone <laughs> right? and they would cut. And he's like, if you notice the cut and he kept saying the word cut, but I was like a child and I didn't know the terminology. So I was like, what are they talking about? <laughs> and then eventually I realized that the camera was in a different position. So there was like a cut and like, I thought that was so cool. And then when I would watch movies, um, my parents were like really young when they had me not like, they were like in their early twenties. Mm-hmm. So they were still like excitable young adults who, you know, didn't, want to watch kids stuff all the time. <laughs> so the way we kind of got around the fact that my dad watched movies I probably shouldn't have been watching as early as I was watching them right. was that he would like 
explained to me like, but this isn't real and this is this. And like, we watched Batman from 89 and I was terrified because <laughs> Jack Nicholson's The Joker is very upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. It seemed enormous and deranged and like all, yeah. and like, I was also really into Michael, Michael Keaton, which if anyone here is familiar with my work, I really love Michael Keaton. <laughs> um, but like my dad explained like, this is an actor and he found like a, a magazine and showed me like, this is what he looks like. And like, this is all pretend they put on makeup. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. So like when I was little, I wanted to like, I was like, I'm going to make movies. And of course, like me and my friends would like make VHS movies and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, I got really into like studying movies. And I like I, to the point where like I created my own independent study in high school about film, which was like basically an art oh, teacher. Nice. Being, like, I don't know read i mean like it was like really well intentioned but nobody at the school was like equipped for that so it was just basically like an art teacher who was like she's taken every class in art i don't know what to do with her <laughs> so it was just me reading like right books about right. production in the yeah. art room um but yeah so anyway i went to college i was studying production but i started learning that like it didn't make sense i felt for me personally this may be different at different schools or for different people I felt that taking production classes was actually not helping me very much because one, I was already doing internships where I was on set and I was doing PA work. So like I was learning the things in class that I was learning on the set. Mm-hmm. And two, uh, being a petite woman in my film school meant that like the dudes kind of teamed up together a lot. And then like, uh... you got like they're like, well, I mean, she's not going to want to be a gaffer. She's not going to want to do boom. And I was like, I wanted to do it all because I wanted to learn it all. So it got right. kind of frustrating on that end. And then I was like debating what to do about that. And then I took a film studies course that just like cracked my brain open. And all nice. of a sudden, like it was if movies existed on different levels now, because it wasn't just like, this is how they make a movie. Isn't this neat? Like then it was like, here's what theory is. And here's how like audience approach matters. And how and like all of a sudden I was like, it was like, I realized it wasn't 2D that if you look behind it, there's like a hall of mirrors you can wander down. And I was very excited right. about that. So I switched to studies, um, but I still thought I was gonna work in production. And when I graduated, I got into post-production. I worked as a video assistant editor. I worked on commercials and TV and movies. And um, then the, uh, the you know, the housing uh, market, whatever, crashed. Oh, yeah. And, no, I was there. Yeah. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I got downsized uh, along with a bunch of other people where I worked. And while I was like trying to find uh, freelance gigs to like pay my rent, I met Dan Mecca from the film stage um, who founded that site with uh, Jordan Raup. And we met at like a networking event and I was basically being like, does anyone need video editing? Please? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, And he was like, you know, you talk about movies in a really exciting way. Have you ever thought about writing about movies? And my response was no. And I had done that all through college. I had written all these studies papers and stuff. And I kind of thought like, I felt like that was my time to do that. It didn't occur to me that that was something I could do for work. Um, And so Dan encouraged me to start writing for them. And I did, but kind of only as like something to keep my brain occupied when I wasn't working, which was a lot Mm because the economy was in terrible condition. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, then it was like, I I really started to like it. And I started to realize that it was a better use of all of my film knowledge than what I was doing. And I felt so much less frustrated because post-production is an incredible skill set and an incredible place. And I knew so many amazing people. But a lot of times I was getting handed stuff that was like (laughs) just pieces that wouldn't fit together. And they're like, well, but, you know, you'll fix it in post. (laughs) Uh, it just was, it got really frustrating for me. And I was like, I like this better where I can kind of sit with my thoughts and then be like, here's a thing. And, Mm -hmm. 
Um, I started moving toward that. And then I started writing for like Cinema Blend back when Katie Rich was there. And um, I worked there for several years and then I moved to Pajiba and I've written for a bunch of places in between. I've freelanced the entire time. I've never had like a whole time gig where I only write for one site. Yeah. So um, I've we, been which all is the, that is the, that is pretty common, you know, like that is kind of the, the, you know, kind of the world we live in uh, is to be able to freelance like that there, you know, a lot of those jobs, um, you know, with one location have gone away in, uh, yeah. in some of the, yeah. in some ways. So, yeah. Yeah, there's like a lot of misunderstanding because I, I write a lot for Pajiba and I am a film editor there and I am their chief film critic, but that's not my full time gig. Um, right. It's just it, for a lot of sites, that's just not a feasible thing. So, yeah, um, totally. yeah, but I've been doing this job for 10 years. And in that time, I've gone to festivals all over. I've been on film festival juries. I've done set visits. Um then, you know, I've, I've done kind of just about everything you can do in this field. Like we say film critic, but as you know, it's like you're a film critic, you do junkets, you do, right. you know, set visits, you do deep dives on like digging back into like, well, what is this talking about and whatever. So like, yeah, I kind of, I kind of, I hesitate to say I do it all because I feel like that's not a very good way of actually explaining what you do. <laughs> yeah. But no, I I've hear done you. a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now it's like, I'm in a good space where, um, people kind of know what I'm into. So like I have people come to me and be like, Hey, we need somebody to, to write about horror. We need somebody to write about the feminist perspective on this, or, mm -hmm. uh, we need somebody to do a deep dive on this particular genre. Like I love doing that stuff. I do a lot of that for like Mel magazine, which is really fun. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I do. Evan, uh, in the chat, uh, says Pajiva. No, I believe it's with a B. Pajiva. Uh, if you want to look at Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I will no. tell you the, the joke about how it's pronounced, but this is a family show. Um, <laughs> I think we all it, can make the connections, but yes. Yeah. yeah it's a P-A-J-I-B-A. -A. Yeah. And yeah, we're, we're a really uh, terrific site that has a lot of different writers that come at it with a lot of different perspectives. We have a piece right now by Jason Adams about happy a season that I'm really happy that we ran. And it's like a deeply personal piece about how he feels like people are judging the uh, the girlfriend in the movie a little too harshly. And then he explains from personal experience why he feels that is. And I was just really thrilled with how that turned out. So, yeah, that's that's one of the cool things about just, being an editor. I just got around to watching that yesterday uh, and I am intrigued uh, by that piece. I would love to, to check that out. So uh, yeah. I may go seek that out. Uh, it is great to have you here. Uh, like many people who've come on before, you kind of share the same things that we hear over and over again, because if you're anything like me, it is the question you get a lot. Like, how did you get this job? Like, it seems so yeah. fun. Like, how did you get there? And time and time again, people are like, there's a lot of right place, right time. That's just going to be the way it is with anything. But there is an also a lot of taking advantage of when that right place, right time hits and understanding yeah. what your skill set is and, you know, just kind of right. doing it. And I mean, there's also a lot of like, you know, obviously I leave out the things of all the other stuff I tried that sure. went nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, when it was like, oh, oh, video production is, you know, like all the budgets have been slashed everywhere. And realistically, I'm not going to be able to make a living doing this for at least several years. Like I had to pivot and figure out other stuff to do. And I tried other stuff, but sure. like. I, I had a knack for this. And um, after I had been kind of doing it for a little bit, I started emailing people and being like, can I get a job with you? And like, I then, you know, you make connections that way. Yeah. And, you know, it's just a steady process of talking with other people and networking. And I like the term networking, I feel like, I feel like when I started networking, I didn't have a good understanding of what that meant. Sure. Because I thought it meant like trying to sell yourself and being like, this is me and this is what I do that's great. 
And it's like, that's actually really exhausting. And um, when people feel like you're talking to them just so that you can get something from them, right? they don't want to talk to you. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. um, I realized I started getting a lot more work when I was just talking to people about movies and stuff that I liked. And exactly. I wasn't focused so much on like being like, they need to know why you're good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's, it's, so, like, it's been my experience in in you know every career path I've had that the when you kind of let loose of that thing that that drive that's like you know oh I want something from you and you you gain the idea of look at these amazing people that have the same interests as I do and now I have a natural curiosity about them like you know what are they what do they yeah. love what like that is what networking really is is just the uh, the idea of finding a friend group in many ways like I'm I'm a big time introvert honestly like I'm a performer so people think that's weird like I like being in front of the camera I like performing on stage whatever but uh but as far as like recharging I do it alone like you know when I'm with the groups of people you know my energy gets gets uh withdrawn um, yeah. but when I'm with the right groups of people, I can relax into it in a way because I know there's like common interests and those kind of things. That's networking for me. That's how you and I yeah. met, you know, like that's how yeah, totally. I met so many people in, in the Critics' Choice uh, Association is just the ability to hang out at a meal table and just say, hey, you know, what movies do you love? You know, we're right. Who are you? You know, <laughs> like it's, that's really right. how it starts. Like, like, you know, because we all love movies, you have an immediate shorthand. It's like mm -hmm. you're you speak the same language already. So right. then from there, it's just, you know. Yeah. It's just talking movies. Well, I'm excited to talk movies, uh, Christy. We've got a couple good ones this week uh, to chat about, at least. I won't uh, you know, say whether or not we think they're good ones. Uh, we'll get to that here in a second. Uh, we're going to talk about Mank. We're going to talk about Sound of Metal on Amazon. Mank's on Netflix. Sound of Metal is on Amazon. Uh, both are out now, streaming now, uh, that you can check out. We're also going to do Best Ever Gary Oldman movies for our Best Ever Challenge. Um, and then we'll, of course, have a buried treasure as well. Before we get into our first review, though, um, there was news this week that was big enough that I feel like we should at least touch on it. And Christy, I'd love to get your opinion on it. I'm kind of putting you on the spot because we didn't talk yeah. about the fact that we'd be talking about this. But when here's, here's how I'll form the question, maybe to get us into it. When they look back at the shift from you know movie theaters to streaming or the combination of the two, or just kind of how technology changed how we interact with movies. Will this be the Rubicon? Will this, you know, the Warner Brothers announcement, is that the one historians, film historians are going to look back on and go, that was the moment, that was the Rubicon, or will they look at something else, do you think? I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think not necessarily this moment. I think the pandemic is going to change what movie theaters are forever, sure. um, because it's not just like for 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 those that don't know what happened. Warner Brothers essentially was like, "We're going to release our entire twenty one twenty slate twenty twenty one slate in theaters and on HBO Max." So the idea being that like you don't have to go to theaters to see their entire slate. You just need to subscribe to HBO Max, right? Which per month is less than the t cost of a ticket in New York, right? So like, <laughs> I mean, it's a really smart idea for their HBO Max uh, subscribe. Like to basically people are going to be like, oh yeah. Like I described it to someone I was like, basically every month it's like Game of Thrones just hit HBO. Like mm -hmm. you may not subscribe to HBO year round, but you will for the month and the month or two the Game of Thrones was on because that's what I did. Mm -hmm. And now like every month there's a reason to subscribe. So people will just subscribe. And I think that makes sense. But what's scary is that it doesn't show a lot of faith in movie theaters getting back to where they were that next, even next year, right? Which is terrifying and making theaters furious, a uh, theater owner furious because they're having a hard enough time. Sure. Like some theaters are open, but they are only open at limited capacity. Uh, in New York City, they are still not open. 
Uh, I cannot see a movie mm -hmm. uh, in New York City. And I'm lucky because I live in New York City, like movie theaters will survive here. There will always be something because New York is a deeply dedicated to culture city. Mm -hmm. But when I lived in Pennsylvania for my entire childhood, we had two theaters, which was really lucky because there were definitely towns that had like a theater. But one of them literally only had two cinemas. And they got like independent and foreign films, but they got them like three months later than everybody else. So I constantly felt like I was catching and playing catch up and like constantly felt like by the time I got to see something, no one else was talking about it. Mm -hmm. And this is also early days of the internet. So it's not like we had like film Twitter to like get excited right. about. It was literally like, like ain't it cool me going news. to the chat rooms and being like, hey guys, did anybody else watch Smoke Signals? And yeah. then just getting silence. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes me nervous because I mean, I think the accessibility is a really cool thing, which is one thing people talk about, like, you know, but then all these movies can be seen anywhere. And I think that's cool. But what I think is really scary about it is I think it is going to make it harder for theaters to reopen because now there's not even necessarily the promise of these big event films that got people to go to theaters to begin with. And like, I do think that will change the way we look at theaters. I don't think movie theaters are going to go away, but to survive, cause I mean, I'm not going to like give a whole history lesson on this, but if you look back at film history, like there has been a literal ongoing conversation about movie theaters are dead since television happened. Right. I mean, Correct. honestly, even since like talking pictures happened, because some people were like, I mm -hmm. mean, what is the magic of cinema? If people can talk. <laughs> and like, it may sound insane, insane and alarmist, but it's also that you were taking a medium that was new and that people were starting to understand and that had an audience. And then you said, we're going to completely change everything about it. And every time there has been a response of going like, this is the end of cinema. So I think that we're seeing that now where people are like, this is the end. And like, I'll be honest, my first thought was like, oh no. Like, I do think it's going to make it way harder on theaters. I do think you're going to see a lot more closings because of this news, because theater owners and like stockholders and stuff are not going to be able to sell the idea that we're going to all be back in theaters by April. Like Warner brothers was just like, Nope. Yeah. And like maybe theaters will reopen in 2021 and it won't be a big scary thing. I mean, you know, like New Zealand and Australia and stuff get to do that. But um, yeah, I think it's a really scary news. I think we're going to see things shift, but I don't, I don't know what that means. I really have a hard time understanding. I think one thing you'll see is theaters will get a lot smaller because then they won't need as much overhead. They won't need to fill as many seats mm -hmm. to like make up for like the amount of space they take up. But that might also be because I come from New York City where rental space is insanely expensive. Yeah. Uh, as you are seeing most of my apartment right now. <laughs> um, you're right. Yeah, I th I think you're absolutely right. Um, I I I'm I've kind of stuck all along with kind of what my feelings have been since really the pandemic hit in March. Uh, we we had conversations about this in March and April that this is going to speed up the inevitable, right? Like there was an inevitable shifting of what movies were going to mean to people as a theater experience. And right. long term, my guess has always been that that is going to be that it will move much more towards the eventized. Uh, movie going experience as it already has been even before this pandemic that you know it's all about the avengers and you know right. dc and, I mean, and even back when 3d became a thing again and they started right. making everything 3d like i used to have to do specifically see movies in 3d because then we would write about whether it was worth the extra five dollars mm -hmm. to see it in 3d right. like and i mean 3d is an old gimmick that they renewed mm -hmm. they also tried to renew like i mean the smell-o-vision was a thing and they tried to kind of redo that with like 4d which i've done 
which <laughs> <laughs> yeah with like the motion and stuff and yeah, yeah. I yeah. came away with bruises from 4D, but Ouch. it did make Geostorm way more entertaining. <laughs> but like, that's the thing. I think that theaters are, have been trying to figure out what to do. I don't, I think it's not just uh, event cinema though. I think the event then becomes the joy of seeing it with other people. Yes, which becomes, totally, totally. Which is now a rarity. But it's weird because like, I thought when I heard that news, I thought surely there are a lot of people who like me are like, oh no, am I ever going to get to be in a theater with a bunch of people experiencing something in that yeah. communal atmosphere again? And so I tweeted about it and I was like, just tell me a great experience you had in a communal environment in mm -hmm. a theater. And like at first it was like people actually responding with like stories and it was really cool. And then the way things go on Twitter where it kept going and going and people just started ignoring the prompt. Right. And like, it just got really weird. And like some people started just talking about the one time they went to a movie and nobody else was there and it was awesome. And I'm like, I mean... <laughs> I understand what your question now. on Twitter was, but I have this thing I want to say, right. so I'm going to yeah, say it on. <laughs> yeah. And then people were just talking about like fights they had seen break out in theaters. And I was like, I feel like we've lost the thread here. <laughs> right, right, um, right, right. Yeah. But yeah. I, that made me worried because I thought to me, to me, the theater is a holy space. Like I, it is my church. I take it like I go there and I, I'm so excited to be there. I'm so excited to be there with other people who are excited to be there. Like film festivals for me are my favorite time. I like love getting to see everyone and talk to everyone. And it's just, you know, because it's not just about the movies, it's about us experiencing them together. And mm -hmm. I love all that. And I genuinely don't know when we're going to get back to that. And like, especially if theaters start closing, it's going to be way harder to have film festivals. So like, yeah. it was weird to me to watch people on, on Twitter go from being like, yeah, seeing movies together to being like, I really prefer seeing them alone. I was like, you can do that now. Why is that so special? <laughs> I am doing that all the time right now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I think don't know. I, to to uh, to borrow your church analogy, uh, I just I I think we're going to end up with a lot less uh, intimate worship services and a lot more mega churches. Uh, and wow. it you know it's it's one of those things where I really believe also because of the legislation that has been pulled back recently that the studios, you know, will own their theaters to be able to do events at. Disney is going That's to own point. theater places where when the new well, Netflix already does because right, the Paramount sure. laws don't actually apply to Netflix or Disney for that matter because right. if it, it's in a wonderful pit of it, uh, of uh, hilarity the legislation actually names specific studios. So if you aren't <laughs> right. in those studios, you could technically buy a theater, which Netflix has been doing. And that's been controversial because people are like, on one hand, Netflix is the death of cinema. On the other hand, Netflix bought theaters in New York before the pandemic and kept them running. Mm -hmm. And they only played Netflix movies, but that was also really cool because then you could go see Netflix movies right. In a beautiful theater. I, I think you're right. I think there will always be a place even for those intimate movie experiences that you just want to see something with other people on a big screen. Um, but I think it will it will it will shift to be a, a much more of a minority of what we're experiencing in the in the movie going uh, world. Kind of like I mean stage, right? Like stage performances were everything. And now of course it's you know New York City where you are, you can go see pretty much anything on Broadway and it's amazing. Um, well, not until May of next year, at least. Well, I just mean, I mean, in a perfect world, yeah. you know, like, I mean, in post-pandemic I mean, well, world. Like another thing. Yeah. It's like, it's really bizarre being in New York right now because so much of what we do, we just can't. And yeah. like, I'm not, I'm not opposed to that because I feel like we need to do whatever we need to do to get the, the virus under lock. And like me being disappointed that I can't go to the movies is not the sure. same thing as me being like, I should be allowed to go to movies. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm actually fine with it. Send me screening links. It's fine. It's yeah. okay. 
Um, but yeah, no, it's a really strange thing because it's like <laughs> Broadway is just mm-hmm. empty. And yeah. like that's a place where like we have not just like theaters where people go see stage shows, but we also have like huge movie theaters there. And it's just really bizarre. Um, yeah, I don't know. Someone's mentioning the Alamo in the chat. And like I like literally like two weeks before I think everything shut down, I was hosting a screening of cats at the Alamo, specifically rowdy screening. And it is, it was one of the best experiences I've had in movies because it was people who were like appreciating cats on a level of like, I know this is insane. I'm into it. Mm -hmm. And like, that was so fun. Like I wrote about that for Pajiba and it was just such a joy to watch that movie. And I had seen it before because I saw it at the critics screening where everyone was like, what's happening? <laughs> what is this? Um, yeah. Right. But like, that's kind of the amazing thing. Cause like in that movie one, <laughs> it is so out there that your brain the whole time is going, are we okay? <laughs> what? Is everyone seeing Judy? Judy <laughs> that's right. Dent's Did they pump something into this theater? Like, you know, are we all yeah. tripping the same here? Like, yeah. Right. Like, you're like, what's happening? But then additionally, that other people are having that experience with you. It's, it's show, it's, I don't know. It's like all the walls come down. Like, mm-hmm. it's just a very, uh, yeah, I miss yeah. that so much. So like, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know what, I don't, I feel like. Like places like the Alamo might be able to sustain because their model was always about targeting specific groups and like playing to like, you know, they've always done revival stuff. And like, I think places like that'll be okay. But like, I feel like places like AMC and stuff, you're going to see those places shutter and then maybe someone will replace them. Maybe those places will be remodeled to be smaller. Right. Yeah. But like, it's hard to imagine like in New York, um, there are two movie theaters across the street from each other at 42nd street and one of them is, I think, four stories tall, and the other one's like five stories tall. Like, they're enormous towers to go see movies. And, like, outside, there's just a huge list of movies that you would mm-hmm. go see. Like, I don't know that we're going to see those reopen. I no, don't know that I, it's ever going to make sense. In fact, I think, and uh, I think we will see a D, I'm going to say de evolution, but that's not really the right word to say. It's just a change, it's just a reverse. I think we will see a reversal from the multiplex back to the you know big one screen you know like it's going the especially if it becomes eventized it's going to be much more profitable to have one giant screen that you can sit you know a thousand people in front of as opposed Mm -hmm. to 20 screens that are all showing different things um so yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't be surprised if if it moves backwards like if it reverses and goes back to kind of the movie house you know kind of idea um but yeah. it'll, it'll be interesting no matter what happens. Uh, thank you for off the cuff chatting about that with me. It just, it does, it yeah, seems like a, that was very kind of, it's just, my brain it, all week has just been like with that. So I'm not sure how clear any of that was. No, I think we're all like that. And I think that's why I wanted to talk about it because it does feel like it's an important moment. Whether we look back on it and go, that's the moment, or we look back and we go, you know, Trolls World Tour is the moment. I don't know. But, you know, like we're going to look right. back around this time. And and really see how it, you know, kind of sped things up. So, yeah, thanks for that chat. Let's get into it. Let's take a look and review Mank. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. Herman Mankiewicz, New York playwright and drama critic, turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hearst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, light, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! 
1930s Hollywood is reevaluated through the eyes of scathing wit and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish Citizen Kane. Gary Oldman uh, starring in this one. Uh, and then you've got um, many Amanda Seyfried in it as well. Um, and this is about the writing of Citizen Kane. Um, and I guess I will start off here and just say, this is a movie I thought was about something. And then I watched it and realized I was way off base. <laughs> like, I think that's important to say because I think it impacted my viewing of the movie the first time through. I have watched it twice now um, because I was expecting like, the battle of, you know, Wells versus Mank and who authored this right. thing and, you know, that, like that biopic energy and, and that kind of thing. And it's really more contemplative than that. And I think that's that's kind of an important to kind of throw out there at the beginning. Um, Christy, we start off by giving it a rating uh, in one of five categories. Liked it, loved it, disliked it, hated it, or it was just okay. Um, and I'm curious, what would you say about Mank? Did you like it, love it, dislike it, hate it, or it was just okay? I'm going to go just okay. Okay. All right. Uh, I land in the firmly liked it category. Not quite loved it, um, but especially that second time through, I think I'm, I'm safe in saying I liked it. Um, why don't you kick us off? What are some of your general thoughts on why you came sure. out thinking it was just okay? Well, I, I, I like Citizen Kane. I like a lot of classic movies. I think it's interesting the way the film interacts with Kane where it, one, the movie assumes that you've seen Citizen Kane. If you watch Mank without having seen Citizen Kane, it, it'd basically be like logging onto Twitter and you see everyone's yelling about something and you're like sort of getting what they're yelling right. about. Yeah, but yeah, not yeah. Really. Like, I can't imagine watching Mank and having it make sense if you haven't actually seen Citizen Kane. Um, and then beyond that, I don't know if it would make sense if you don't already know the history a little bit of the making. Because like... When I saw Citizen Kane, it was in college, and we saw it with the context of this was a movie they were making to criticize William Randolph Hearst. They denied it, but they also were like, like, but there was also stories about like, in particular, Orson Welles like going after him in like mm -hmm. elevators and stuff. Like, so you know that all feeds into when I watched Citizen Kane and what Citizen Kane is to me, and it's like. I walk into Mank with all that context. If you don't have all that context, I don't know how much sense this movie would make from a plot perspective. Um, but beyond that, I like how the movie is a pastiche of not just Citizen Kane, but that kind of era. The characters talk like the characters from classic Hollywood cinema. There's a lot of this kind of talking. Really fast <laughs> and rough, right, 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 yeah. Like, as I said in the pre-show, super into Turner Classic Movies, so all that, my jam. And like, also you can understand why literally everyone signed on to this movie. Cause you're like, oh, I get to like do that voice that like I grew up with Yes, thank you. Um, but I feel like the story feels really emotionally hollow to me because the way they decide to ground it is around the character of Herman Mankiewicz who is like religiously aloof. Mm -hmm. And the movie is supposed to be about effectively him learning to care and him learning that like why that's actually a damaging way to interact with stuff. But I feel like it doesn't really click in a place. And so I, the whole movie feels like it's at a remove and I like enjoyed looking at it. I enjoyed watching it, but when it was over, I didn't really feel anything. Yeah. I, the, the things I picked up on on the second, just to kind of bounce off of what, what you were saying, the, the things I picked up on the second time through, especially were kind of the the layers of you know what's going on with Mankiewicz is also in some ways 
um, you know, going on with Fincher is also in some ways going on with Wells. Like, you know, they're all kind of echoes of each other in a lot of those ways. They're direct echoes of Citizen Kane in the movie. Um, you know, uh, I think there's, uh, you know, famously a, um, a, uh, a glass he drops out of his hand in the same way, you know, that the a snow globe yeah. drops out of the hand. And says, There's that kind of, you know, wink stuff that's going on. So as far as like coming to the end of it and feeling like it meant something or that the story had an impact on me, that's kind of where I landed on that. Now, that's not extremely fulfilling. That is not how I personally like um, the most to experience a movie. I, I, I am a sucker for like the big story with the big meaning and the deep metaphors and like that stuff tickles my brain in really fun ways. Mm-hmm. And, and this is really just more of a... Fincher doing Fincher. He's doing like his technical stuff, which I really mm-hmm. do like that probably even more than anything else. That's the reason I end up saying I liked it. And the reason I would watch it twice is I just, he, as somebody who is a well, a Wells fan, you know, for citizen Kane in some of the, the movie stuff that he did in that, but also very much a Hitchcock fan in the way he would use the camera and invent new ways of seeing, you know, the screen um, Fincher has really taken that on. In fact, in, in some movies, a, a little bit uh, too much. You know, I think of um, Panic Room, which I rewatched this weekend, uh, is just all about like, look at what the camera can do. I can go through the lid of a coffee pot. And now I'm going right sure. through the wall. And now, and you know, there is an element of I that. I remember that was a complaint people had about Fight Club too. They felt right. that cinematography wise, it was too clever. Right. Yeah, the, the term I'm hearing these days is athletic. He's a very athletic director. You know, he he really goes after uh, it. I and, mean, I guess that's a good, t- like, I get what that means. Right. But I also hate that. As a, like, yeah. that's such a condescending term. <laughs> I know, oh. I know, I know. That's how I've heard it is condescending, too. So, yeah. Um, but I but that stuff appeals to me. Like, that's one of the reasons I like watching, um, you know, Vince Gilligan stuff on TV, like Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, is he also does a lot right. of that really fun stuff with the camera. And so, you know, it is a reason I come away, I think, um, enjoying this movie uh overall so what do you think about the that's the thing it's like i like it but i like it for the reasons i like citizen kane like i don't know that i like mank on its own i think there's a coldness to it and i think fincher is a pretty cold director i don't think that's a bad thing i don't think that's inherently a criticism of him but i think there are scenarios in which that coldness works like zodiac the coldness makes sense Mm -hmm. because the whole thing is steeped in this sense of dread and it's almost like you can like feel the cold air on your skin as you watch Mm -hmm. that movie you know what i mean yeah like and i think it works for like seven i think it works for i think it even works for fight club where like you have characters who are really passionate but really glib like there's a bleakness in there so i think that stuff makes sense for mank it's weird because the movie almost feels, I mean, the movie is essentially, it's essentially a fan fiction first off, sure. which is fine. I don't, I don't need movies that are like based on real events to be real. I like, you know, we have history books for that, but like, man, like the liberties they choose to take. And then I'm like, you could have at least like judged it with just a bit of emotion, but instead it's like, I don't know. It's Gary Oldman feeling very comfortably in his niche is mm-hmm. like, I like it's just kind of like charisma and a bit of madness and like smartest guy in the room and I get all that but like it's man I it just feels hollow for all these little things like I really hate how they write basically almost every female character in this movie Ooh, tell me about it tell me about it well like for instance his wife who Mm -hmm. is played by Tuppence Tuppence Middleton who Mm -hmm. like could be Gary Oldman's daughter um 
it's just weird. She only shows up to like either support him or nag him. And mm -hmm. like, why was she even in the movie then? There are enough people giving him a hard time. You don't need to have the wife that like, it's just so frustrating. She literally just shows up and she's like, Mank. And I'm like, man, what a waste of a character. Sure. And then by contrast, it seems she exists so that it makes us like the Amanda Seyfried character better. Mm -hmm. Right. And I saw some people online. I think Amanda Seyfried is very good in the movie, but like people online, I saw someone being like, oh, well now, you know, the, the dumb blonde character is dead. Amanda Seyfried killed it. And I understand that like Twitter is a place of hyperbole, but it also kind of annoyed me. Because I feel like it falls into that trap of acting like this is the first time we ever took a character that you thought was going to be a dumb blonde, but then she's got smarts. <laughs> like literally born yesterday did that in 1950. Let's all settle down. Right. Um, and I feel like this movie owes a lot to Judy Holiday specifically. Like, I don't know a lot about Marion Davies as a person. I know a lot about what other people said about Marion Davies. Right. So like, it's hard to filter that. Um, and I think that Amanda's really interesting and fun in this role. And I think she brings a lot of charisma, but I'm not mistaking enjoying watching Amanda with like having feelings about the movie. Like I right. still felt really numb because it's, it felt again, like you were like, well, we, well, hit Mank has this nag of a wife, but this hot blonde who's also smart gets him. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I totally uh, hear what you're saying. I did feel a little more positive towards his uh, wife character than you did. I felt like in many ways, she was the only one that was able to, uh, ground him authentically like he liked mm -hmm. the report you know the repartee that he had with you know the marion davies character and that you know she was kind of up for it and equal to the task and that kind of stuff but she, there was a there was a reality to the wife character and it, where i would agree is there's not nearly enough of this going on for it to make much of a difference in how the movie what the movie is saying and what it's doing but when she was there i did have the feeling of you know she says something about you know your platonic affairs and you know this and that and there's just a moment there where you're just like oh she's living in the real world everybody else here is you know in this fantasy say the coolest thing be the suavest person right. and she's like hey you know guess what's happening in the real world real stuff and right. there, there was that the part is, of it i don't know if you're familiar i think her name is natalie walker but there's this like comedian slash singer slash actress on twitter and she does these videos that are basically like stereotype female characters that are just mm -hmm. exist on the side so yeah. that the plot can be juicier. Yeah. And like she felt like a character like that I where she pops fair. up solely. Yeah. She pops up solely to be like, you're doing a good job, Mank, and I approve as your wife. Yeah. I, I don't we don't need that. And like the thing is there's a whole speech she gets, which I feel like is supposed to justify her existence, but it's essentially saying that she chose to be the battle axe in his life, that she knew that he was a difficult man, but she chose him anyway. And right. I was like, no, that's exactly <laughs> that exists in all these movies already. We don't need to give her a speech that validates, right. like, but essentially says it's okay that he's abusive and selfish because she signed on to that. Right. Like, it's like it's like the the much more shallow version of Phantom Thread. You know, like yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. It's like another one of those stories that was like, well, he was a great man, so it's okay that he was like, and I mean, mm -hmm. he makes an absolute jerk of himself mm -hmm. over and over and over again in the movie, but like, because Sarah says it's okay, we're supposed to be okay with it. And I just, I get very frustrated. Like, I feel, you know, especially because I think like the first character we see in the movie that is a woman, I might be wrong, is literally topless, except that she's wearing silvery pasties <laughs> and a typewriter. Yeah. Like, yes, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, it just, I mean, it, you know, and it's like every character in this is a sketch. So, like, I'm not necessarily saying, like, only the female characters are written to be stereotypes. Like, 
Louis B. Mary is mercilessly written to be just a crony. Like there's mm -hmm. not a lot of depth to a lot of the characters. And like um, Thalberg is written to be very manipulative. And you know, there's not, it's, it is characterizing these people. It, it, they are all caricatures in like mm -hmm. the literalist sense. So I'm not saying this is like an aggressively like misogynistic movie any more than like a movie from that time that right. was like, oh, yeah. so that was abroad. Um, but it is disappointing that if the whole arc about Mank is that people keep asking him about how he wrote Marion into the script and he keeps being like, it's not her, it's not her, it's not her. I'm like, I mean, okay. But also, like, he doesn't care that everyone else thinks it's her. Like, you know, right. it's literally they're supposed to be friends. And the emotional tension is supposed to come not from him being afraid of William Hurst, which is a choice. Because William Hurst is, like, literally one of the most like most powerful people in America at that point. Mm -hmm. But okay. But instead, like, the emotional tension is supposed to be, how is she going to take this? And it's like, we've only ever seen them interact in moments where she's being very plucky. And never really all that down. Like, even when she's down, it's still from this, like, kind of manic pixie dream girl level mm -hmm, of down sure. where he can, like, buck her up by saying something witty. Mm -hmm. And, like, their big moment together, I just feel like it doesn't ring true for me or, like, interesting for me because it's still ultimately that he doesn't want to feel bad about being a selfish person. Yeah. And it's just, like, it all feels like it's justifying the story I've seen a bunch of times before and, like... I just and you don't you don't like, think he you don't think he uh, you don't think that it's possible at the end that there is a shift in him realizing that that's who he's been and maybe not who he wants to be or is that am I misreading the character development of of that character? I mean, I maybe, but then also the last thing they give you is this speech where he's kind of justifying all of his behavior again because they won the Oscar. That's true. You know, no, I mean? that's a fair point. Like, yeah. I feel like that's not a spoiler because like people <laughs> <laughs> no, that's happened fine. many years ago. Mm -hmm. But like it, it feels like ultimately, you know, I like it's one of those things with stories when you're telling a story about a creative, I want to say person, but creative man. The mm -hmm. stories we get like this are again and again, like I know this guy was abusive, but he was super smart and creative. And like, okay, but like it's interesting to me. Like to me, the most interesting part of the movie is involving the Upson Sinclair stuff and about how like it wasn't enough for him to say to his boss, I don't want to partake in this. He basically gave his boss a roadmap about how to do the very thing he didn't think should be done. Right. And like I feel like the movie moves past that in a really precarious way. Mm -hmm. So like it was, to me, I was like Huh. Like, I feel like the movie is is giving you interesting ideas, but doesn't really let you sink into them because it's so caught up in kind of the style and the verb. And it's like condemning Hollywood but at the same time being like, but isn't it pretty? And I don't know that it pulls it off. It's trying to have its cake and eat it too. And I don't think it necessarily does that. I think all of that is fair. Uh, I think it pulls it off a little bit more for me than you, it sounds like. Um, and part of it may just be as somebody who for my entire life has been so in love with quips and words and wordplay and just like there was there's such a such a uh you know a, a bevy of wonderfulness uh when it comes to the way words are and i don't know how much of this was his dad's script i know it's the screen the screenwriter is his dad right um yeah i think jack it's jack david fincher fincher's dad, yeah. yeah david mm -hmm. fincher's dad and uh i don't know how much of that was you know um added on by other people or whatever, you know, screenplays can be interesting that way. How much is done on the day, improv, whatever. But um, man, it's really nicely written. I just, I, I, for somebody who loves that stuff, that's probably another reason that, you know, every sure. 10 minutes I'm getting, oh, that was smart. <laughs> like, like yeah, I love that stuff. Yeah, the dialogue stuff. is great. Yeah. 
totally crackling yeah. dialogue, really in tune with the kind of comedic sensibilities of the time, but in a way that feels freshly exciting. I think the, I think all the dialogue stuff is great. I think it is a movie that has like a lot of style. Mm-hmm. It's just that for me, not as much substance, and yeah. especially and I I like Gary Oldman. What is he doing in this part? <laughs> <laughs> And there's a line in the film where I was like, I don't know anything about Herman Mankiewicz. I was like, maybe he was in this roughly this age. But there's a line in the film where he yells at somebody. He goes, I'm 43. And I was like, hang on a second. <laughs> and like, apparently him and Marion Davies were around the same age. Yeah. Like, look, mm-hmm. if you're going to have Gary Oldman to play Mank, who is 43, and then you're going to cast 35-year-old Amanda Siegfried, like, come on, man. And, like, that's like that's the other thing. Like, all the women around him that are, like, interested in him remotely are always half his age. Yeah. But, like, not in the movie. In the movie, like, yeah, it's just stuff like that where it's, like, it was actually disruptive to me at that point. Sure. Where I was like, look, I think Gary Oldman's great, but you were having him play. I forget how young he's supposed to, like, I forget how old between the two parts of the movie, how many years has passed. It's a little unclear and maybe mm-hmm. intentional so but like gary oldman does not look remotely like he's in his 40s and then i ended up looking up a herman mankiewicz and here's the thing i do not care if someone looks like in a movie what they look sure. like in real life sure. do not think that is an interesting or important part of capturing a moment in time however like mankiewicz had a baby face and what that means is that people interacting with him would not be interacting with him as they would with Gary Oldman, who is in his 60s and looks good for being 62, but for 43 looks rough. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. And like, I just found that kind of vexing. And like, especially because we keep having him put up against these young women. And like, I know that's a, that's a Hollywood thing. So maybe there's a, meant to be a criticism in there, but it just feels like it doesn't feel like it. It just feels it, like there's like, this is another thing we like about Hollywood that we old men get to act like we're going to hook up with Amanda Siegfried even when we're 62. Yeah, and and you you counter that with the fact that for years women past a certain age in Hollywood and are would and are discarded. You know what I mean? Like in the fact that sure. men can work into their sixties and play, you know, thirties and forties and, and like let's not forget that it was like two years ago we had Jennifer Lawrence playing a forty year old in Joy. Mm-hmm. Like literally Hollywood is like, ah, Gary Oldman can play forty. Also Jennifer Lawrence. Like <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. like that was where like the fun of watching the movie and the fun of the banter and the fun of the characters and stuff where I start going. Yeah. I get it. If if it's going to be just surface level, then don't, don't, you know, I don't know. I I just, I also feel like Fincher's smarter than that. So maybe there's something I'm missing. I only watched it once, but I got kind of frustrated because it felt very kind of like, I don't know. It, and it's like, I know that his dad wrote the script and I know that his dad based the script on the Pauline Kale article that has been like completely debunked by now. So it's like, I get that there's like meant to be a lot of fun, but I feel like it's trying to have all this kind of like rah-rah Hollywood fun with a wink while also kind of pushing a narrative that does not exist mm-hmm. while also trying to act like it's more sophisticated than it is. And I'm just like, like, I, you know, honestly, it's like if this had come over out over the summer instead of award season, I probably wouldn't have been as riled about it, but it's coming out at that time now where my brain is like, mm-hmm. you need to see all the best stuff right now, which makes it harder on any movie I'm watching. But like, you know, people are like, oh, we're going to get Mank and it's David Fincher and it's Gary Oldman. It's like all these Oscar winners like this is yeah. going to be intense. And I watched it and I was like, I mean, it's fun. Yeah. Let's let's finish here uh, with this review. Where would you put it in his kind of filmography? You don't have to be like, you know, 
laser accuracy, but you know, would you say it lands somewhere towards the bottom with the way you felt uh, about it? Somewhere more towards the middle? Kind of, how are you feeling? I mean, for me, probably toward the middle. I really, I, like, I really like his stuff when it, hmm. I, the career thing that I like, I like his, like, I like when he does crime stories. I think Gone Girl is amazing. I think Zodiac is impeccable. Yes. Um, and like, I really like Fight Club, which is not a true crime story, but is a story about crime and politics mm -hmm. and, and toxic masculinity and all that stuff. And I like seven, but like this for me is like, I know the social work, I know, and this, I know the social network is a great film, but it's also a film that I watched and was like, wow, I feel nothing. <laughs> and it's like, it just, like, it is was it like, similar oh, to make in that way? Is it kind of similar to make in that way for you? I think that there's a lot more investment in trying to understand Mark Zuckerberg in okay. that movie than there is trying to, I feel like the movie, like, I feel like Mank almost takes for granted that we like Mank and therefore are just on this ride with him and like relate to him. But I feel like Mank comes from a very cynical viewpoint and I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to his worldview. So like the assumption that like, because he's sassy and because women think he's attractive that I'm immediately supposed to latch onto him, like that didn't click for me. So for me, like, you know, for me to be like, for me, it was like the social network, like that to other people will be like, oh, so one of his greatest films ever. And it's like, <laughs> right, fair enough, fair enough. I don't think this, that the social network's a bad film, but it's a film that doesn't speak to me personally. And like Mank, there's a lot of things in it I like, but it's because it's, so much of it is is a pastiche of a time and like being like we love these things we love these things but it's acting like but there is a seedy side and it's like we know we also love the seedy side yeah you know like i mean like part of, you know down to the fact that there's like a joke there's the rosebud joke in this like there's dirty jokes in the movie because even that was something that existed at that time that we're still fascinated by mm -hmm. because there's like all this glamour but then also being like by the way shady <laughs> talk so I don't know. I, I like it. I like it as an homage of that age. I like it as like this kind of giddy fanboy criticism of an era, but I don't think it's all that deep. Yeah. Or, I, or it's committing the same sins of the things it's claiming to criticize. Yeah. I think it's firmly in the middle for me. Um, you know, I, I have, you know, Benjamin Button and Alien 3 and, you know, some of those down there like many people do. Um, I didn't necessarily love girl with the dragon tattoo. Um, I feel like I got it, but it, it wasn't, you know, great for me. Um, but yeah, but you talk about Zodiac and gone girl and fight club and even the game. I love the game. Um, you know, yeah, he's, he's hit some home runs, so it's not a surprise that, you know, if it's not a home run, it's going to land, you know, uh, somewhere short of that. Um, but yeah, well, there you go. There are thoughts on Mank. Um, I would give it a, a recommend, slight recommend at least. Uh, Christy, who would you say this movie is for? Or who would you recommend it to? I mean, I think that if you're compelled by the trailer, like you'll be interested in it. I think it's m intended for people who are more into classic Hollywood cinema. Um, I saw somebody in the Slack saying, or in the chat saying that they had already watched it and they had not seen it at Citizen Kane and they didn't think it was confusing. So great, cool. Maybe you don't need that as context. But for me, the real joys of the movie were all the references visually mm -hmm. uh, and kind of to that. So, I mean, you know, I honestly, I think it's fine. I think it's, you know, a solid movie. I just don't think it's going to be anywhere near my top 10. For there the you year. go. There are thoughts on Mank. Let's move on to Sound of Metal. Your hearing is deteriorating rapidly. We'll come back. Till then, Lou, we just keep going, okay? No. 
Lou, no. let's play them all. Let's see what it's like. Okay, I'm gonna be like a click track. You can play it in me. You understand me? I can't. I'm deaf. I'm deaf. A drummer's life gets turned upside down when he suddenly loses his hearing. Uh, no, it's not the Fresh Prince. His life doesn't get flipped, turned upside down. It just gets turned upside down. Uh, Riz Ahmed uh, playing the main role here. Um, Olivia Cook in there as well. Uh, what do you think about Sound of Metal? Uh, Christy, did you like it, love it, dislike it, hate it, or it was just okay? I loved it. Nice. Yay. I love loving Um, movies. Yeah. I I loved it. uh, Even though it basically gave me a panic attack for two hours. (laughs) Like, and it's like, it's not like it's, it's not like, it's not like hereditary or something where it's so scary and tense or something that it binds you all up. It's just, it's like on the surface. Yes. It is about a heavy metal drummer who loses his hearing. However, it's ultimately about him having to learn to like sit in silence. Like mm-hmm. that's literally about, and that, and sitting in silence means sitting with yourself, means sitting in the moment, means trying to shut off your brain and just existing. And for a certain type of person, that's really hard. Mm-hmm. And I am that certain type of person. So I related very deeply to those aspects of the story to the point where there's like a scene where he basically is having a panic attack in his own variety. And like, I was experiencing it and like literally was like doing this calming method that's supposed mm. to help you like help your body be like you're right. okay it's okay right. and i was like literally watching the movie and doing that because otherwise i was like i'm gonna have to shut this off i can't and like i had to review it i couldn't i it wasn't just that i was like i want to watch this movie it was also like i have to watch this yeah. movie and clearly enough that i can write a review um but yeah i thought it was really sensational i think that the way they get you into his mind space is really incredible because i mean there's a lot of movies that audio wise submerge you into it um, but in this, it's like they distort audio. There are points where they get rid of the audio. It's not the entire movie because they also want you to be understand what's going on. So you understand mm-hmm. things he doesn't necessarily understand because they bring the volume back up for you. But there's like a point early on where the audio is distorted, like it's muffled. And I realized I was doing that thing where I cl- where you click your jaw on like an airplane or something to try mm-hmm. to make your ears pop. Yeah, yeah. And I just kept doing it uh-huh. because... My brain is like, you can't hear what's happening. You need to fix this. And yep. it was like, I was having very physical responses to it. Um, and that was really wild. And and I felt like a good way to kind of like put you into that spot. And then Riz Ahmed has such a powerful performance. And it's like, it, man, it just doesn't let up. It's just a movie that like grabs you by the chest or like grabs you by your shirt and is like, we're doing this. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. it doesn't let go. And I, I just, in movies and like in moments that were intense and in moments that were happy, I was just fully invested in sound of metal, you know, and, and I'll get to, uh, I'll get to my rating here in a second, but I want to address kind of what you're talking about with the not letting up thing, because there, there are different versions of this, right? You think <laughs> of something like uncut gems, this is a movie yeah. that grabs you by the shirt and doesn't let go, but is also messing around with you. It's like throwing you all over the place. And you yeah. know, this is a movie that grabs you by the shirt and doesn't let go. And because it wants you to see something, it wants you to know something, it wants you to understand something. And so it's, it's at the same time, there's anxiety. There is also contemplation. And that is a crazy tough balance i would imagine to put into a story where you're dealing with levels of anxiety that you're talking about and also dealing with something so um deep and meaningful and what it's trying to do 
Um, I landed uh, in the um, heavy liked it category, not quite tipping over into the loved it, but I really did like this movie. Um, you know, if, if people have listened to my reviews before, you know, I'm very much a, a, an active movie lover. I like stories that, you know, go places and do things. And this is, this is not one of those movies that is kinetic in a plot way. It's not a kinetic mm -hmm. plot movie. But it is a kinetic emotional movie. And I think it says enough about this movie that um, even though, uh, you know, I didn't have necessarily the same things that I, I usually love to engage with plot wise, I had enough emotion wise and performance wise, definitely, that just kept me right there in the movie, enjoying it, having a good time, which is a weird thing to say about a movie like this. But, you know, um, processing it, thinking about things. And uh, so, yeah, I really did uh, really like it, even though it's probably not typically like right down my wheelhouse as far as the kind of movie I'm going to love. In fact, usually around award season, uh, I have two or three that other critics just, you know, really, really love. And I'm just like, eh, not my thing. You know, like it's just right. I'm, I'm kind of a little more populist, you know, as a movie critic. I, I, I like some of those bigger things and and uh, more kinetic things. Um, but this this one kept me. I, I really did enjoy it. And. I think a lot of that does have to do with with Riz and uh, and his performance in this, um, which is which is not only great, but it's also super high level of difficulty, right? Mm -hmm. Like to to be able to convey what he's con conveying is, you know, I, I I like you have, you know, had moments where my ears will clog up, I'll you know have wax buildup or something, and I'm like, oh man, I got to get this taken care of, you know, because it just it shuts down your world, like hollows out your world. And to have overnight what this character is dealing with, um, to portray that is, um, I don't know, I've, I found it really, really impressive uh, throughout the movie. I thought he did a, did a really impressive job. Um, what other thoughts, yeah. Christy, did you have? I, well, I also like this. So it sets up in the beginning that he's basically touring around the country in an Airstream. So it's not like he has this like super elegant life. It's like right. he has a nice right. Airstream with yeah. his girlfriend and they go around to kind of dirtbag clubs and play and like... It's not a glamorous life, but it's one he's really proud of. And yeah. him him having a, a history with addiction is like another part of the movie. But uh, what's interesting is it's like he's also really afraid of losing control because of that past. So like you keep watching him. It's just it's really amazing because it's like it's about him not being able to hear people. But it's it's really about him not even when he can hear what they're saying he just he can't let it in he can't accept that his life is different now and it's it's watching him struggle with that even as he learns things even as he finds a community even as he learns asl so he is able to find a way to communicate with people like he still just has this idea in his head that i'm gonna get back to where i am and like we as an audience know that is not gonna happen like enough people have said to him like there is no, you can't just go back to where you were before mm -hmm. but he it, and it's like that I relate to, too, because it's like when you're going through trauma, the lie you tell yourself is I'm going to be OK. I'm going to be and to you, OK, means I'm going to be like I was before. But like, we're never who we were before. You might be OK. Yeah. You're not going to be who you were before. And I think the way the story handles that is so amazing. And it's like there's a really tearful scene in the beginning, uh, like the end of the first act where. Uh, his girlfriend, Lou, who's played by Olivia Cook, and this is one of the best roles she's gotten in years because she's mm -hmm. another person who keeps getting like the dying girlfriend role or mm -hmm. like the cool girl where she exists so that the male main character can have feelings. And I think you can make that argument here because she is another girlfriend character. However, I feel like 
they give her enough of a story that you feel like she had her own arc. And I actually read that the director had planned to like make a movie that is just her version of what happened. Oh, interesting. But yeah, but at last I heard it couldn't get funded or something, but maybe this movie will do really well and then we'll get the Lou story. But anyway, him and Lou are saying goodbye because he needs to go to a facility where he can like process this and learn ASL mm -hmm. and all this stuff and they can't do it together. And like their farewell scene is so heart wrenching because like, there's a lot of like anger and, and pain and grief, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, it's a moment where he is recognizing that like this chapter might be like this, there is a death in that this moment of his life is done. Mm -hmm. And like, I think the film is really dogged in its, it, in its portrayal of those moments. Like, and I think that's why for me, the emotional tension in the movie is so taut. It's yeah. not like every moment. It's like, I think, uh, I think your comparison to the Adam Sandler movie is really smart because in that movie, that movie is a very anxiety-driven movie, mm -hmm. but it's partially because like everything is going on. Yeah, there there is something going on here that is, it's more than the anxiety that they they put in front of you, and I think a lot of that has to do with um, I don't know how to pronounce the actor's last name for sure, but it's uh, Paul Racy or uh, Racky possibly plays Joe at the uh, ASL uh, in Community. And he offers the movie a real sense of grounding that um, I think is is what allows us to understand what the Ruben character is supposed to be making his way towards, you know. And I, I know personally uh, through some trauma recently in uh, in my uh, my own life where. Um, well, I, my heart stopped beating. I stopped breathing. My wife saved my life, uh, not to necessarily, you know, spend, you know, several moments because Chris Daniel, you're probably hearing about that for the first time, but where I was told after the fact, cause I don't remember a lot about it, um, because, well, I died there for a second and also because there were lots of, you know, drugs to bring me back. But, uh, I was told even going into the hospital after they brought me back to life that I was like, I'm fine. Take me home. I'm fine. You know, like there is this, there is yeah. this thing that I think we all do that is that is very much and it's kind of one of the beautiful things about humanity is kind of that stubborn optimism i kind of really like it but at the same time there has to be an honesty to our experience that this movie is willing to let him have it's willing to let him have both that stubborn optimism then and then also say yeah but you're kind of wrong about this and to help him right. find his place there I, I really thought it was beautifully traversed in that way yeah. yeah. And I think it's part of the trauma response too, that like you need to believe you're going to be okay or else how do you get through that moment? Right. You know yeah, I mean? totally. Yeah. And like, that's the thing. It's like, he keeps building toward this idea he has of what he needs to do. And I thought that the way they, they transcend that is really amazing. And yeah, Paul Racy, I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, but incredible. There's yeah. like a scene between the two of them over at kitchen table. And like, Man, I like part of the thing that drives me crazy about Oscar season is that everybody talks about the big performances and it's like who Daniel Day Lewis did up and none of that. And like, right, you know, yeah. like we all think of like the sizzle cut that they put together for the Oscars where it's like cutting to someone and it's like, I know this. And I'm like, you can't have <laughs> And it's like yelling, like acting right, is yeah. just. Yeah. It's not about who did the best performance. It's about who did the biggest performance. Mm -hmm. And like, this is like the total counter example where like Paul Reese just the look on his face and he just has like such an expressive face and the subtlest motions. I'm like, he gives Riz this look and like my heart couldn't handle it. It like, was, yeah, it was so real. It was so real. Yeah. And then it's like, then the plot goes somewhere where I really didn't anticipate it to go because they have absolutely not set up where the third act takes place. And I right. think that's fantastic because again, it's like, he's on this journey where he doesn't know where he's going to end up. And I feel the way the, the film, 
puts you in that same position where you're like, oh, okay. And also there's like three different instances where he is made an outsider because of sound, either the lack thereof mm -hmm. or because he doesn't speak the language. And, and every time we feel that so intensely with him in part, because Darius Martyr keeps switching back and forth between sound or not. Like there's a scene when he first goes into the uh, the deaf community and they're all signing to each other at dinner and he doesn't speak sign language. Mm -hmm. So he can't communicate with anyone. Right. Like he can't. And like, you know, he just came from being from a hearing world where he couldn't communicate with anyone because he couldn't understand what they were saying. And now he's like on the other side of that where mm -hmm. it's the same experience, but within the deaf community. And I thought that moments like that are so they're just really smartly done and they're really small. And again, it's like Riz is so good because his, his body in this is so tense in these moments. Like mm -hmm. you can you see it in him and it's, it's him, you know, like you can see in him in these tense moments that his character has gone through hard times before. And mm -hmm. he, he is, it's basically fight or flight. Right. And he's like ready to fight somebody. He is yeah. just, he spends so much of this movie in this pose of like, I will battle for this, but it's like, you can't, punch anybody and get your hearing back. And so he just doesn't have the tools to figure out how to deal and to watch those tools be developed. It's like, it, I, I realize this may sound very dull. Like I'm basically being like, it's a movie about therapy, really. <laughs> but like, that's actually what's really incredible about it is that that Darius Martyr managed to take this moment that is that are quiet moments, that are these small moments. And they feel so emotionally raw that like, yeah, I spent two hours just being like, don't freak out, don't freak mm -hmm. out. Because it's like that that fear of what your future is going to look like if you change, because like maybe what he had wasn't perfect, but he knew how to operate in that, you know, like. It, but then, and it's but like, then the it's, movie also gives us, you know, a moment on a slide that is so you know, authentically foundationally beautiful. You know what I mean? Like it, it finds a way somehow to do both. And I think, I think yeah. it really deserves credit for that. So yeah, no, this, this is a, this is definitely a good one, maybe a little more contemplative. Um, but if you, you know, if you're, if you're looking for something evocative, if you're looking for an incredible performance, I, yeah, I don't think you're going to go uh, wrong with sound of metal. Did you have anything else you wanted to mention about the movie before we head on? Um, no, I wrote a review for Crooked Marquis. If you want more on, nice. on my, on it, you can read it there. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's a really incredible performance. I think he could be very well front runner um, because this movie has enough of a profile that even some of the bigger organizations will think will take notice. And I hope so, because, man, it's just a knockout performance. And I think Riz has been doing really good roles for a while now. But like, you know, it's so political about like, I sure. mean, it's, it's another side of networking, honestly. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. yeah, no, this movie, it's an amazing movie. I may never watch again. <laughs> Like, it there just, are those movies. Yeah. Yeah. I watched it once and I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. And I, I it's imprinted on my soul now. And I hope do you think it's else worth, do you think it's worth even like a, you know, a trigger warning kind of thing for people who deal with anxiety? Like, is there, you know, something that you need to be prepared for if you're going to watch this as someone who hasn't I mean, really anxiety, hasn't been a part, a huge part of my life. And so it's not something I sure. identify with. Um, but you know, I, I, you know, I want to make sure people know that going into something if they may you know need to struggle through I it i mean i don't know enough about how everyone else has anxiety triggers to say i right. would say that if you do suffer from anxiety be prepared for that because to me the movie never uses the phrase anxiety but essentially he's trying to learn mindfulness exercises and if you suffer from anxiety mindfulness exercises are a major part of like right. trying to learn to correct that um, so like for me, that was it. It was like, it was literally like, I mean, like literally the first time I tried to meditate, uh, ever, I had a panic attack 
And it's like, that's essentially what he's experiencing. Right. Your body, like you've trained your body to not relax like that. Mm. And uh, I actually thought that's really incredible. I think that even if it's hard to watch, I would recommend it. There's nothing triggering that I think would actually like harm anyone. Yeah. I don't. Think. Um, but yeah, I would say that's part of the reason I wrote about, I mean, I wrote specifically about that in my review because I don't know. I don't know what, what, you know, could, could, uh, sure. and it, it was, I don't regret watching it. I'm really glad I watched it, but I, now it's like, if, when I think about watching it again, I'm like, oh, I know I'm going to have like a really intense reaction. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's also, you know, it's just, it's an amazing performance. And it's also a performance that I think is ultimately about when you hit, when you hit a wall in your life and you're like, the only way is through. And mm -hmm. it's about the process of getting through. Yeah. And I thought that was really well told. And and like, especially this is his first movie, right? Darius Marber. I believe like so. He's, he's yeah. an editor, but I think this is his directorial debut. It's like co-written by Derek C.N. France, which like very Blue Valentine vibes in mm -hmm. that like also like I'm like, this is an amazing movie. I will never watch this again. <laughs> um, but it's like this brand of I think it's because it's so doggedly authentic, even down to like they cover his body and all these tattoos. And like they're not like cool movie tattoos. They're like. They are tattoos that you know people that have those kind of tattoos and the kind of people you're like, okay, bud. You know what I mean? like, <laughs> sure, sure. Just every time they would show another tattoo, I felt like I knew more about this character, even though it's not like he sits and goes, oh, well, the reason I have a tattoo mm -hmm. of tight whiteys on my arm is because like there's never a conversation about it. Right, but, like, right. You get a good feel for who this person is based on all these elements that are brought into it visually and audio and man, the audio. Yeah, that's one thing I will tell you. If you watch this at home, uh, if you have a great sound system, awesome. If you have headphones, do that. If not, just play it like play it as loud as you feel comfortable playing it because you really need to experience mm -hmm. like sound and loss of sound. I agree. Like the first time I've ever in a like a proper booth, like you may be in a proper booth right now. I'm not, obviously. <laughs> but when I was in an actual booth that they use for recording studios, it's so quiet in there that my ears started freaking out. Mm -hmm. Like they started yeah. almost ringing. They don't know how to deal and with like, the silence. Yeah. Yeah, and like that's what I experienced watching. It's kind this. of the like, point of this whole I movie, this. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, that your ears are just like, wait, what's happening? Yeah. And like the fact that they managed a sound design that makes you physically feel that way is really amazing. And like that may not hit everyone the same way, but like for me, it it so threw me out of my comfort zone that I started ha like I realized I was being triggered, and so I was able to do things, and I was fine. I did not like have a full panic attack, but like I was like, oh no, that's what's happening. Is like I'm experiencing that. Um, but yeah, and I think that's powerful because I feel like it is, it is a story about this, but it's, it's a story about anybody who is had to kind of fight through something like that, where mm -hmm. there is, where there is, there is no going back to, yeah. you are always going to be this new person now. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's also, you know, it's like when people are like, oh, well, but it was ultimately a good thing. Like this movie is not saying it was ultimately a good thing. He went deaf. Like that's. It's saying like that happened and mm -hmm. now what? And I thought that that was, you know, it's interesting because like we didn't like discuss in advance like, hey, let's have like thematically different movies. But like, you know, for me, Mank was like really neat to watch, but emotionally hollow. And like Sound of Metal was like audio wise overwhelming in a really specific way. And like what what just grabbed at my heart and my rib cage and shook me a whole bunch mm -hmm. was the emotion of it. Right. And uh, to the point where, yeah, it was like a, it was a fully physical experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, for me, it's, it's definitely recommend. I think obviously for Christy, it is as well. Um, so you can check that out on Amazon. Uh, again, it is called sound of metal. Uh, before we head on to the best ever challenge, just a reminder. Thank you so much to our amazing SIF pop members. Uh, we appreciate you. We love you. 
Uh, we couldn't do what we do without you. If you want to check out how all that works, just go to the Patreon, patreon.com slash siftpop, S-I-F-T-P-O-P. Um, sports starts at three bucks a month. Lots of fun perks there. You can check those out, including a bonus audio podcast every week. And this week, uh, Christy was kind enough to go over her list of shame with us. We played the list of shame game. And boy, oh boy, it's a doozy. You'll, uh, you'll want to <laughs> check that out if you're a Sif Pop member. So, but thank you so much. We really do appreciate you from uh, the bottom of my heart. Um, it's, it's very humbling that you would choose to send a few bucks our way every month. That means a lot. So again, check it out at patreon.com slash siftpop. All right, best ever challenge this week is Gary Oldman movies. Uh, we're each going to go from number five to number one uh, movies that Gary Oldman is in. And again, if you have one that uh, you've got ranked higher than me, just let me know and we'll wait to talk about it uh, till it is uh, at the highest point on one of our lists. Um, if you're in the chat and you want to let us know your favorite Gary Oldman movies, feel free to do so. We'll also have, I'll have some uh, honorable mentions at the end uh, if we don't talk about them. Um, why don't you kick us off, Christy? What's your number five Gary Oldman movie? Uh, my number five is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. You know what? This may shock you. I'm going to have to trump you on that. I actually have it higher. <laughs> that's exciting. Okay. Right? I was worried. I was like, okay. No, that's, really, that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, I have it number five, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, I these, This series of movies just was one of the most pleasant surprises of my movie movie going over the last uh, decade or so because I wasn't expecting anything from this trilogy uh, which I don't even know was originally going to be a trilogy necessarily but the first one was so good and uh, I just I really enjoy these movies I think all three of them stand together really well I think if I had to pick I like the the final one the best I always have a hard time remembering which is rise which is dawn which is you know a war I think war is the last one um, but I do enjoy these movies quite a bit. Uh, Andy Serkis, of course, is phenomenal uh, in these and single-handedly has moved the discussion on the idea of a performance-based uh, Academy Award or you know, some sort of vocal performance, you know, non-visual performance-based uh, Academy Award. I think we'll have one of those within the next decade or so. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I really enjoy this movie. So I had it at, uh, at number five. Any thoughts on the, the Planet of the Apes movies? Uh, I liked, I liked them back when they were people in plastic monkey masks. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Not Little at all. I liked Heston. the new ones fine. Yeah. yeah okay. But I, I preferred the kind of, I don't know. There was such an ardor in those early ones that I, they're, they're my faves. Yeah. You're a big, uh, big fan of the, was it Tim Burton that did the. Yes. <laughs> I did not like his no. remake. I did see it in theaters opening yeah. weekend. Yeah. Because I was that girl, but yeah, they're, they're, these are fine. They're just, uh, I don't know. I think it's that they, this was when the series got like, it felt that these were serious in a way the, the original had a little bit of a wink to it because they kind of had to. And it's like, oh no, now we have the effects. This is very serious. And I was yeah. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, but they're still not talking monkeys. I mean, just <laughs> that's right. Else. That's still what we're doing here. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's yeah, your number I'm four? Girl. Yeah. Oh, my number four is Lawless. Okay. Good choice. Yeah. Talk like about it. Like, no one talks about Laos anymore. I loved this movie. It's about, like, bootleggers and, like, you know, Jessica Chastain's so good at it. And, like, he's, like, one of the smaller characters in it, so it feels a little bit like a cheek to pick it. No, but not I at all. really love Lawless. I have the soundtrack on my phone to this day because it's so good. But it's, like, it's just, like, it's a really moody movie and everybody's kind of on the same page. And it's, like, it's not authentic 
because everything's a little like too, just a little too much. Mm-hmm. But I like that about it. And like, that's a very Gary Oldman trait to me where it's like, here's where this would be authentic. We're going to go. <laughs> and I appreciate that about him. Nice. Uh, all right. My number four is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Uh, so we can go ahead and talk about it. Uh, this is just such a fun movie. It is the, the side story is one of my favorite like movie, I, I almost said tropes. That's a little negative way to say it, but just, you know, the the idea of showing what happened to the side of a story that you know is just, it's just a beautiful way to experience something. I, I mean, I love Lion King one and a half for that reason. Like, it's just, it's just kind of a fun thing to, to see. So this is definitely, um, you know, one of my favorite versions of that uh, with the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern characters uh, kind of having their, their own story. Plus it's, it's so, uh, fun in a clever way, which is always going to yeah. tickle my funny bone. You know, there's there's a meta-ness to it that's that's really, really good. So what are some of your thoughts, Christy? I saw Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead as a black box production when I was in high school. Because again, nice. theater kid. Yep. Uh, and then when I realized it was a movie, I was super excited. And like, it's just, uh, it's so good. It's like from 1990. And like, it's just, Tom Stoppard's script is so smart. And then it's, what's amazing is like, I was super into Hamlet, again, Deeply nerdy, deeply nerdy. <laughs> and I love the idea, though, that like Hamlet is like a straight face drama. There's like all these big moments. And then Rosencrantz and Gunstern is deeply funny, but sad and weird. And also the entire movie, like the whole time I watched the movie and like the play when I went to see it, I was like, but I mean, maybe they don't die, though. Like, even though I know the title and I know the story and I know where we're going to go, like I got so caught up in their adventure that I was like, maybe not. No. <laughs> um, right. But yeah. It's it's just such a terrific performance and like it's oh man, it's just theater kid mana. It's exactly what mm-hmm. you want. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. What's your number three? My number three is Leon the Professional. You know that just came up in the chat, so let's let's get to it. Uh, I saw. I, I I came to this movie like way late. Like I just saw this a, a couple years ago for the first time, and I think that had an impact on kind of because I, I I'd heard a bunch about it. And sometimes when you come to something late, it just doesn't hit the same way. And I think that's my experience with this movie. But I'd love to hear you know kind of your thoughts on it and why you love it. And yeah, it's uh it's become problematic on a couple of different levels that yeah. I don't really want to get into all that right yeah. now. But I saw Leon when I was much younger. I just thought it was such a fun story. I think, uh, you know, Jean Renault is so incredible in it. And it's it takes all these elements of um, kind of almost like Chaplin-esque humor and puts it into a hitman movie. And then there are more tropes in it that don't work as great. But like Gary Oldman plays a villain who is, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very campy performance because it's so over the top. He's like, always on i'm assuming amphetamines i'm not really hip on drug culture but it's always <laughs> Don't ask me. cracking these pills in his teeth and then like being really out there mm-hmm. and it's like you know everyone knows the scene where um they're like these like get me everyone and they're like everyone and he goes everyone <laughs> yeah, like, super yeah. intense um but yeah the professional is just it, it's such a stylish movie and it's like a movie that was very influential. Like if you watch other action movies after you've seen the professional, you're like, Oh, they're doing the professional. Right. Like, yeah. 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 And um, I think that's, so- that's part of the reason when you come late to a movie, sometimes it doesn't hit the same is because, you know, you've seen the influence of the movie so much that sometimes you don't give the movie even subconsciously the credit it deserves for, you know, uh, originating some of that stuff. Right. So, yeah. Which I will say to people who have not seen Citizen Kane, they're like, I should watch that before Mank. Um, if you're not impressed by Citizen Kane, 
maybe read a Wikipedia entry because Citizen <laughs> Kane did a lot of things that like now are standard, but were not at the time. Yeah. And like that was part of the reason it was so and not even except like not even at the time was super impressive, but the part of the reason it's such a big deal in film history is because of the things it set up and like knowing the context helped a little bit. But yeah, I, I can totally see watching Leon now and being like, this is what people are so crazy about. I'm like, glad you mentioned the uh, the uh, Citizen Kane thing. We talked about it on this show, I think two weeks ago, we reviewed Citizen Kane and, you know, kind of talked about some of that stuff. But one thing I forgot to mention that I would mention now, if you can find it, I don't even know, certainly in today's internet culture, you'd be able to find it. But um, Roger Ebert's commentary on Citizen Kane is almost just like, required listening uh on mm -hmm. this movie it's just all those things you want to be educated about and know about how that film changed movies uh he goes over in that commentary it's it's one of my top favorite commentaries uh movie commentaries of all time because of that so uh we didn't get a chance to mention that a couple weeks ago so i'm, I'm glad you brought up that stuff because uh, i did want to point people in that direction um so yeah uh you have leon at number three right so we're on to my number three yeah. Uh, this is where I have the fifth element uh, in at oh, number three. Oh. oh, all right. Very nice. Glad to hear it. Excited to talk about it in a bit. Uh, what do you got at your number two then? Well, this gives away my number one. But my number two is Bram Stoker's <laughs> Dracula. Because I love this movie. Do you really? This movie is so crazy. It's so insane. <laughs> when was the last time you've seen it? Well, I, I saw it recently. Um for it was like on shutter like last month was it yeah 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 i i had to uh review it for a another job that i have um where we go through movies and look for i don't know you might say sins like cinema sins that kind of thing so we did uh sure. we did dracula uh we did this one recently so it was it's definitely a fun one to sin i will tell you that but yeah it's uh it's it's kind of well no i'll let you talk about it you you brought it up so why don't you talk about it I love it. I sure. love it so much. Um, so here's the thing. It's I understand there's a lot about it that's completely bonkers, but that is why I love it. Like I, you watch the movie and you're like, how did they make this? Why did they make this? Who agreed? <laughs> and it's so good. But it's like that's kind of the thing. It's so like they just went so out there with it that like I mean it's perfection. I, I could never have made this movie. I could never have imagined this movie. And they're like, we're going to do a gothic vampire tale. But Francis Ford Coppola was like, you know, who would be perfect for playing like the English guy who just doesn't realize he's in a vampire's house, Keanu Reeves. And Keanu Reeves was like, cool, I'm not going to do an English accent. And like, <laughs> oh, bless him. It's I love it. Mm -hmm. And they didn't even like change his hair. It's still like the, like that parted sure. bowl cut that yeah. we were super into with the 90s. And like every part about this is completely insane. Um, the costumes are amazing looking. And Gary Oldman is like a super sexy Dracula who is also a real weirdo. It's just, it's a movie that's like super horny and weird. Mm -hmm. And like I watch it and I feel like it was a gift. There's like no reason <laughs> this movie should have been made and it was and it makes me so happy every time I watch it and like I genuinely love it I genuinely love the sheer bravado like this is 100% an example where the studios were like well everything Francis does touches like it turns to gold and like mm -hmm. how could how could how could Dracula not make money which I love is a thing Hollywood still keeps doing <laughs> right like, yeah uh the universal monsters never fail um, but I genuinely love this movie. I don't care that its plot is 
all kinds of wild. Um, it's just, there's something about it that is so intoxicating. And so we were talking about cats earlier mm -hmm. uh, and <laughs> I feel like I'm revealing way too much about who I am. <laughs> no, I'm loving this. This um, is great. But like, again, it's like you watch this movie and this movie refuses to let you be comfortable in what you think mm -hmm. <laughs> the world is. And sure. it's like, no, this is what we're doing. And um, one of my favorite things about this is um, when I got to interview Ben Mendelsohn for the first time, because I've interviewed him a couple of times, um, we were talking about like influence points for him. And at that point, he had been playing a lot of villains. And I was like, you know, this is before he got cast in Star Wars, but when around they were like rumored to cast mm -hmm. him in Star Wars. Right. And I was like, well, like, what are some things that are like very inspirational to you? And he was like, oh, you know what movie I love is Bram Stoker's Dracula. And I was like, yeah, that tracks. Uh, <laughs> and then we talked about Gary Oldman for a while. Um, but it was like, of course, Ben Mendelsohn idolizes Gary Oldman. That is that a hundred percent makes sense. There is mm -hmm. a there is a straight line there. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I love this movie. And every time it's on a streaming service, I'm like, cool, we're watching this. Yeah, because it's just it's so special and so weird and beautiful and like, oh man, and I love the, I love the boldness that they're like Bram Stoker's Dracula, like dude, like. <laughs> It's just like, I think, because I think he, Kenneth Branagh did the same thing with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein uh -huh, and then yeah. just made up a bunch of stuff yeah. and also included a sequence where he runs around without a shirt for like no reason. Mm -hmm. uh, I love it. I love the hubris of it. Like, uh, I yeah. mean, I love a big swing. That's where yeah. I'm at. <laughs> there's even a, uh, there's even a universal monsters joke in, uh, in Mank, right. To kind of bring it full circle. That's, <laughs> there's, yeah. they, they kind of talk about it there too. Uh, listen, yeah. uh, I am not a, uh, a movie shamer at all uh i people love what you love uh and this makes me very listen, for somebody who sits on here every once in a while and tells people about the amazingness that is swing kids uh i have i, <laughs> I have no, no shame <laughs> i have no ground to stand on. uh yeah so there you go uh uh it, bram stoker for a while time man yeah like just, it's true it's oh. true I, like, I feel very lucky that I was like a child who was going to the movie ever the movie theaters every week and like this mm -hmm. was the stuff that was playing yeah it's like, craziness it's craziness uh it should surprise no one that I have the dark knight uh in my top two uh I have it at number two um these movies hit me at a perfect time when I wanted superhero movies to be something different you know and uh it, the progression and evolution of the superhero movie it's just been so interesting uh, mm -hmm. to watch because it, it was one of those things where it started as uh, almost an elevated version of how ridiculous the comics were, right? You think of some of that Batman and Robin stuff. And then so it takes Nolan to come along and be like, yeah, but what if it was a little grittier? What if it was a little darker? What if it was you know, a little more grounded in that kind of idea, which of course comics have been doing. It's not like that's a new idea in, into comics. And I should say, I'm not a comic person. I'm not speaking from any kind of expertise. Um, but then to see Marvel be like, yeah, but also the ridiculous stuff is fun, but you can also do the ridiculous in kind of an authentic way. And so it's just been this, this interesting kind of evolution of what the companies have done. But, but yeah, the dark Knight I think is, uh, of that trilogy, the one, um, you know, that I always go back to and just think it's, it's incredible stuff. And, you know, Nolan was already Nolan, but also not quite Nolan, if that makes any sense. And so sure. he's, he's really kind of finding his footing in a very populist uh, offering. And yeah, I, I had a really good time with it. So that's my number two. Um, any thoughts on the Dark Knight or the Dark Knight trilogy? 
I feel like this is where I lose the room. I it's prefer fine. Keaton and uh, Burton sure. for Batman. Th this does not surprise me. After the conversations we've had the last, you know, like, uh, the, yeah. yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. I, like I think that's valid. Swing. Yeah. That, um, that, but also, it, it goes back to my Planet of the Apes point, actually, where I always cringe a little when a uh, superhero movie doesn't re inherently re recognize the ridiculousness of superhero movies. Sure, yeah. And, like, not ashamed. But, like, I get it. But, like, at the end of the day, he is a man who is, like, I have billions of dollars and I have a lot of <laughs> yes. I'm as a bat. Yeah. And, like, what I appreciated about the Tim Burton movies, I never questioned that decision because look at Gotham in those movies. Right. Especially Batman Returns, which is my personal favorite Batman movie. And now that it's Christmas season, it's a Christmas movie. So do watch <laughs> Batman Returns. It's on HBO Max and it's my favorite. Um, but, yeah, no, I like those movies fine, but, like, I like I was exciting for me, as you said, to like see a very because we basically went from like Spider-Man movies like Sam Raimi Spider-Man mm -hmm. to like these. Yeah. And they are literally night and dark or like, you know, night and day. I was trying to say dark night <laughs> yeah. and day and I screwed it up. Yeah. That yeah. would have been if this were a review, that would have been a very sharp joke. Um <laughs> But yeah, I, I like them fine, but for me the the Batman movies I go back to are Batman Returns and Batman. Like I just Fair enough. Also, Michael Keaton is my favorite Batman because Michael Keaton is maybe my favorite human on the planet. Yeah. Uh, Michael Keaton was the first famous person I met at my first ever Critics' Choice Awards. Uh, and it was so cool until I realized he was he had the flu and he came to the <laughs> awards anyway. Like he was like, I would have like, gladly gotten his flu. That's, <laughs> that's where we're at. I think, I think I even made some stupid joke where I'm like, oh, the Birdman flu? <laughs> Ah. come on man come on oh man I, wish I got to meet him on the set of um spider-man because he was the vulture and i was doing a set visit and i was super excited because i had never gotten to talk to him before he was total and, sweetheart he was really nice and you know yeah he was just coughing and stuff super smart and like i follow him on twitter now and like we politically agree on a lot of things so i just appreciate him but also he grew up around the same area of pennsylvania that i did so like there's also that like part of, you know, sure. any like and when I say around like two hours away, he lived more near Pittsburgh than <laughs> I right. did. You know, but, like a couple yeah. houses down, you know, it's like how we claim Jeff Goldblum too. you're like they were remotely near where I grew up. It counts. That's that um, is totally Jeff Daniels for me. Uh, I grew up in uh, a small town in Michigan and Jeff Daniels famously lives in a small town in Michigan still like, you know, he'll come to L.A. to do whatever he does. But. Um, we were like, yeah, we're from right near where Jeff Daniels is. Meanwhile, it's, you know, an hour and a half, you know, north of where we live or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally get that. Uh, yeah. Well, Michael Keaton still tweets about Pittsburgh politics and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I have opinions too. It's like, <laughs> I have not lived in Pennsylvania since 2001, but I have a lot of thoughts about it. That's right. That's right. Hey, Christy, I think I know you're number one. Do you? Yeah. Lay it on us. <laughs> it is the fifth element. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, I don't, I just... There's like a point where you have such an affection for the movie. You can't, I don't care if it's good or bad. I don't know. I don't know. I love it. I think it's a perfect movie. I like, I, I watched it uh, on HBO. I did not see it in theaters. And it was another one of those movies where the whole time I watched it, my eyes were just this big. And I was like, mm -hmm. what is happening? Yeah. Like I wanted everything to be real down to like McDonald's waitresses having to wear super complicated objectifying costumes. Mm -hmm. I just, everything about it, Ruby Rod and like, Pavel Pavel Laguna, like everything about this movie is amazing. And then in the middle of it is Gary Oldman with this super weird haircut and this like, like clear plate that no one explains. And he has like a weird desk pet. It's just, it is again, 
Luc Besson uh, mm -hmm. from the press shot. And it's just all these details that like tell you about a world. And like, again, they must have spent so much money on this weird, weird movie. Like they clearly thought this was going to be a franchise and then it just, that didn't happen. Yeah. And so what we have is this one super weird adventure that like, ever, like a bunch of things have come since then. And, been, you know, it's like, oh, I just love it. I love it so much. And it's like, it's, it's um, weird. And I don't know if the plot totally makes sense because I just don't care. I, like, I, I love it so deeply that there's, it is, to me, it is perfect. I think it makes fine sense for a sci-fi movie. I don't, you know, I don't think there's anything to be ashamed, uh, ashamed of here in that regard. Uh, but it is definitely a crack cocaine kind of movie where if you're into it, it's like in you, like it's, it's in your yeah. skin kind of thing. And I definitely had the the same thing. In fact, from, from the moment Diva Plava Laguna or whatever starts belting out that, you know, pop, techno I could opera probably thing. do that word for word but uh, very poorly i don't have her vocals or the, i was just like uh, it blew my like, mind i was just like what is this and how do how do i live in this world and how do i watch this movie nonstop for the rest of my life yeah so yeah yeah uh, i also want to give a shout out to sonic screwdriver who mm -hmm. said the fifth element is super green yes thank you thank <laughs> yes, you for making that indeed, reference indeed uh what'd you think of valerian what'd you think of uh kind of because that's his first real kind of sci-fi shot at that yeah. since then yeah i mean and that's the thing they promoted it i got to go to like a special advance thing where they were going to mm -hmm. show us eight scenes from valerian and they had been promoting it at like yeah valerian's the movie he wanted to make but he could only make fifth element and mm -hmm. i was like oh man i like if fifth element's amazing valerian's gonna be the greatest movie of all time and no it wasn't <laughs> i know yeah same I feelings just, same oh, feelings man i like i don't know and it's also part of part of the fifth element that makes it so fun is like I really love, I mean, also, I really love Bruce Willis because again, I like being raised in the eighties. You see a lot of the Bruce Willis type and like, mm -hmm. it, like, you know, he, it took his whole shtick of like blue collar, tough guy. Who's like a detective or a cop. And mm -hmm. it was like, now he's a taxi driver slash meat popsicle. <laughs> and like, I loved it. And they're like, we're going to put him in a crop top that has like a very feminine back to it. And I was yeah. like, yes. Yes to all of this. Yeah, and we're gonna this hair blonde. Sure. Yeah, there's like, a lot I of don't... there's a lot of androgyny to it, right? Like it, it, it wasn't yeah. something you saw in movies all the time. Then yeah, it was really cool. And it's not it's not weird. It's like no. it's, I loved how it gave me like a a very familiar version of Bruce Willis, but in a very unfamiliar look. Mm -hmm. And yeah, everything about that movie was just the coolest to me. And I'm probably gonna once we're done with this, I'm probably gonna put on the Fifth Element instead of one of the FYC screeners. I probably be watching. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, my number one is the Book of Eli. Um, this this movie for me, it, there are movies where you get to the end of them and you're like. Oh, I didn't see that coming. I need to watch that again. And there's certainly an element to this movie story-wise that is like that uh, for me. But even more than that, the end of this movie does something on a metaphorical level that I wasn't ready for. I just thought this was a typical, you know, kind of um, journey movie. Uh, and in many ways it is. And Denzel's being Denzel. And I love when Denzel is Denzel. Um but then at the end, it just kind of had that one-two punch for me. It was like, oh, and then also, oh. And so there was like, when that happens for me, it locks me into a movie in a really interesting way where I'm just kind of like, those are the kind of uh, movie-going experiences that I, I relish, that I crave, you know? And so this was definitely one of those, um, one of those movies for me. Uh, and I know it was hit or miss. I know a lot of people didn't like it. Um, and I get those reasons uh, why they didn't. I recently did a rewatch on it. 
And um, it still works for me. It just does. It just still works for me. And I, I think it's a, it's an interesting look at a, um, you know, a world where there's a, a rampant uh, virus pandemic. And, you know, it's exactly the kind of uplifting entertainment we need during 2020. <laughs> Sounds like escapism. <laughs> I'm into it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's my number one is the Book of Eli. Uh, and that is very much a me thing. Um, did you have any thoughts you wanted to express on the Book of Eli? Only that apparently it's on my list of shame. <laughs> oh, okay. I well, that's better than that's better than you know that you hate me for liking it. You know, which uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've gone over. I have defended cats. That's right, you have. Shrekers, Dracula. That's right. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you also know that I defend Serenity, not the Firefly one, the Matthew McConaughey listen, one. Listen, I, I can I can almost get to Cats. I cannot join you. I cannot get to Serenity. I don't. That movie is so bad, Christy. It I is, love it so much. It is so I awful. I saw it three times in theaters, okay? Wow. That's where I'm at. Wow. I saw it in a press screening, and I laughed. The entire way through it, and no one else did. It was a very lonely experience. And then when I flew to LA for the Critics' Choice Awards, um, my friend Angie Han said, there is a screening of it for press two hours after you land. Do you want to go again? And I went, mm. yeah, I do. And I went again almost entirely so I could look at Angie when they do the big reveal of what the twist in that movie uh -huh. was. And it, I regret nothing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then when it came out opening weekend, I took a group of friends who knew I was super into it and knew there was something going on that people kept talking about but didn't know what. And I have a photo, I think it's on my Instagram, where afterwards I made us all get a group photo and most of them are so mad at me. I don't care. I love it. I love, I love a big swing. Listen, I you love what you love and we will not hold it against you here. Uh, I think it's beautiful. And there's not a taste requirement for being a film critic, which is something nope. I appreciate. Nope. No accounting for taste. Nope. Not at all. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's uh, finish up with our buried treasure for the week. What is that one thing in any area of pop culture that you want to make sure people know about? Uh, Christy, what do you want to throw out there? Okay, so we've been talking a lot about FYC stuff because uh, I know you and I are both in it. With, yeah. Like all the stuff we're supposed to watch so that we can make educated choices yep. in our votings. Um, I keep telling people, watch Swallow. Um, Swallow is called a horror movie. It is, but it's like a very, it's not a scary horror movie. It's a horror movie in that it deals with things we are afraid of, but it's sort of a dark comedy. Okay. And it is about a woman who uh, eats items that are not edible, including, as you can see in the picture, a safety pin. And I just- That is a thumbtack. And I want to uh, tell you, oh, yeah. I want to tell you right now, I may never watch this movie just because of this poster. It is freaking me out. It says swallow and she's holding a thumbtack. That is not yeah. okay. Okay. So here's the thing. I uh, saw it last year at Fantastic Fest. Um, and one thing that was amazing at Fantastic Fest, they gave everybody edible glass to enjoy as we watched the nice. movie. Good call. Which was incredible. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's actually a really interesting story about, uh, about female empowerment and about how we can kind of get trapped in lives by making one decision, another decision. Um, someone's asking if it's about domestic violence. It is not about domestic violence. Um, it is, it's, it's a much, it's a much more sinister uh, version of um, sexism and misogyny within the home where she's expected to be this perfect wife and mother. And she doesn't even know if this is anything she wants. And her rebellion is to eat objects like paper, like, like paper clips and dirt and marbles and, it's very, it's a very like physically uh, taxing movie because you do watch it and go like, oh, oh my, <laughs> but it's also like candy colored. It's really beautiful. 
And what's really fascinating is the um, writer director of it. He, this is a real condition. This is an actual condition. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah. not like, um, it's not like, I don't want to just randomly crap on movies, but it's not like movies that act like having this condition makes you a monster. Instead, it really tries to understand like, well, why, why would a sane person do this type of thing? And he actually based it on his grandmother who had a different ritual of control thing, but she was like in a life that she didn't understand how to process. And she kept rebelling in this way that was actually really harmful to her. But instead of like getting help that helped her, like she had to like sign a doctor. Like she went to, um, he, she was sent to an asylum and to get out, she actually had to sign a promise that she would be a, a wife and mother that would like keep it together. Hmm. And like, how is that helpful? Um, but he he made this really moving, thoughtful film that really understands what it's like to feel trapped. And um, it's just very moving. And Haley Bennett is the woman on the poster and she's the lead performance. And it's such an incredible performance because it's it has to do all these things at once. And I highly, highly recommend this movie. It's one of my favorites of the year. And it's weird enough that you're not going to hear a lot about it. Um, I'm hoping that she becomes a performance dark horse and maybe the screenplay will get something. But like, yeah, it's just, it's also been a, there've been really great movies this year. So I'm not going to begrudge other movies by being like, oh, we're going to hear about these other movies instead. But like Swallow is one that's not going to get as much attention, but it's on Showtime right now. I really think it's sensational. I do not recommend like eating while watching it unless I guess you have edible glass. That was fun. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's, I don't think it's a hard to watch movie in that it's not gross. It's not, uh, it's to me, it was not triggering, even though like I could relate as someone who has anxiety, I can relate to some of the elements in her head where her head is telling her like, this is what you need to do. And your body's like, is it now? <laughs> Um, but I actually think it's a really smart and funny movie. It's like surprisingly funny, uh, considering the dark terrain of this, but, and the filmmaker, uh, Carlo is, is just really terrific. And I'm really excited to see what, what he does next. But yeah, Swallow is one of my favorites of the year. And it's cool because you keep seeing it cropping up in like little places. So it's not going to be a big swing for, uh, award season, but I'm hoping we'll, we'll see some stuff for it. Uh, I will watch it. I promise you I will watch it. Uh, and I may even report back to you. Um, okay. It's a uh, pica, right? Is that what it's called when people, the condition? No, pica when they pull hair out and eat it. I forget the specific name for okay. this. I wrote about it for sci-fi, but I wrote about it when when uh, the film came out, which I think was like okay. last March. I don't remember off the top of my head the condition, but right. it is like literally a condition where people are compelled to eat things that are inedible, like couch stuffing and stuff like okay. that. Um, Swallow is the name of the movie, and you can check it out on Showtime. Uh, my, um, my choice for buried treasure this week is the flight attendant. Uh, I got into, just started watching this. I think there are five episodes out now. Um, I think the season is going to be seven or eight episodes. I'm not sure. This is uh, Kaylee Kuoka, who you may know from the big bang theory. Um, uh, I know her first from, oh, what was the name of that? Um, eight simple rules. There was a sitcom called oh, eight yeah. simple rules and she was the daughter in that. Um, I think it was the first time. Um, she is perfect for this role. And I think that's why uh, I'm recommending this is she adds a real quirkiness and humor to what is otherwise a pretty dark murder mystery. And so that is a combination that is interesting and exciting to me because I love the quirk and I also love a good murder mystery. So um, the conceit is that the uh, man that she sleeps with and ends up waking up next to has been murdered. This is on a layover of a flight that she's a flight attendant on is now a part of her like mind space. And they're trying to figure out the murder together. So he was murdered. She was there apparently, uh, although blackout drunk from the night before. And so they're trying to figure it out. Um, I'm having a lot of fun with it. It's really interesting. I'm really intrigued. I can't wait for the next episode. And so if that is, 
if that is the case, I figure it's doing something right. And uh, so I wanted to let you guys know about it. Again, it's called The Flight Attendant. Uh, I believe it's an HBO Max original. So I'm not even sure it's on HBO. I think it's just on HBO Max. Um, I think you're right. That, uh, that you can check that out. Have you checked this out at all, Christy? I haven't. I heard it's great. I also heard from a friend of mine who got the first five episodes as a press screener that she was really frustrated because then she had to stop. So yeah, yeah exactly. I'm- yeah, I am currently trying to not watch it until all the episodes are online. Fair enough. Fair enough. So it'll be like a little treat for myself once I get through all the stuff I'm supposed to watch for work. There you go. There you go. Flight Attendant on HBO Max. Uh, you can check it out there. Uh, that is my buried treasure for the week. Well, that's going to do it, Christy. Congratulations. We did a podcast together. Amazing work by us. Great job. Thanks so much for joining us today for Sif Pop. It is part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. You can find out more about other shows on the network at studiodna.media or by searching Studio DNA in your podcast player. Uh, huge thanks to Phil for producing the show today. Thank you, producer Phil. Uh, thanks to Drew for doing the graphics and some of the other design. Uh, appreciate you. Um, and thank you to Christy for being with us today. Christy, where can people find you? Plug away. What do you want uh, people to go see? Um, yeah, I write all over the place. So you can find me daily at pajiba.com, P-A-J-I-B-A.com. Uh, I have collections of my articles at decadentcriminals.com, which is just like it's spelled. And it's also on my Twitter link. It's basically since I write everywhere, I try to compile stuff there. So you can find reviews and stuff there. I'm on Twitter at my name, Christy Puchko, K-R-I-S-T-Y-P-U-C-H-K-O. That's also my Instagram, but my Instagram is mostly where I post pictures of cocktails and uh, embroidery crafting that I do. <laughs> and, uh, it's, 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 a, it's not necessarily movie related. It's great, though. It's a great follow. Thank you. And sometimes I post outfits and weird makeup looks. Uh, my Vincent Price look, I was really proud of, actually. Yeah, I felt good really stuff. good about how yeah. that turned out. Um, but yeah, and uh, I'm all over the internet, but you can Google me. My name is distinct enough that I'm pretty much the only one that comes up. So. There you go. It's a nice world to live in, right? When you're the only one that has your name, you know, like all the yeah. websites are available. All the usernames are available. It's it's really nice. Right. I mean, that's the thing. Part of when I got married, you know, I didn't change my name because I was like, I mean, there's only one <laughs> It works. works. Yeah. Uh, much love and gratitude to our Sif Pop members for giving monthly to make Sif Pop a real thing. Support starts at three bucks a month. Comes with some pretty fun perks, including the bonus episodes that we talked about earlier. Uh, lots of ways to connect with us. Uh, you can email us, feedback at siftpop.com. You can also leave a comment, rate, or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And finally, if you're having a good time, your movie-loving friends will probably like the show too. So make sure you let them know about it and that listening is much easier than writing a screenplay that actually is director-proof. Uh, we will be back next week with who knows what. There's so much out right now. We'll pick a couple movies, uh, talk about them next week, and we'll see you then. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.